With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello there, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, and today I'm joined by a special guest. That's right. My uh, guests on my podcast get a, a theme song. So my guest today <laughs> is so my guest today is Stephanie Gray. Now Stephanie Gray is a seasoned and international speaker who began presenting at the age of 18. She has given over 800 pro-life presentations across North America as well as in the United Kingdom, Ireland, Austria, Latvia, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. She has spoken at many post-secondary institutions such as Yale University, George Washington University, the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Sussex in England. In 2017, Stephanie was a presenter for the series Talks at Google, speaking on abortion at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California. Stephanie is faculty at Blackstone Legal Fellowship, where she trains law students from around the world about conversing persuasively on abortion. She is author of Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth, as well as A Physician's Guide to Discussing Abortion. Stephanie holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from UBC in Vancouver and a certification with distinction in healthcare ethics from the NCBC in Philadelphia. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Clinton. I couldn't help but laugh out loud at that lovely theme song you had with my name in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd actually be surprised. It, it, it was very difficult for me to find a song that actually had the name Stephanie in it, uh, so it took a bit of tracking down to do. I have to say, that is the first time I've heard a song with my name, so thank you for tracking that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Actually, uh, it's a song by a group called Kaiser Chiefs, which is a, a group that I, I enjoy myself, and uh, it was actually a track that was released on a Japan-only release on one of their albums. So if uh, oh, if wow. anyone if anyone liked that little snippet and wants to track it down, unfortunately, it'll, yeah, you'll have to get it, I believe, imported from Japan, but I would encourage you to, to do so. Now, before we begin the interview itself, I just want to take a quick moment and tell everybody that we are now on iTunes. I finally got 
uh, everything ready to go. I got the image and got the uh, RSS feed and everything. So we are now up on iTunes. You can now find us by searching the podcast app on your smartphone, or you can find us on your computer by going to itunes.apple.com and searching for our podcast, Pro-Life Thinking. Now, we are recording this show live, and so I'm going to be interacting with Stephanie for roughly about a half hour, and then I'll open it up to callers. If there are no callers, then I'll just continue on with my questions. Now, if you have a question for Stephanie, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. So the two main topics of conversation that I had for today was I'd first like to talk about the Google talk that she gave titled abortion from controversy to civility. And then I'd like to spend some time talking about her book, which I believe was released in 2015 called love unleashes life. So let's go ahead and start now by talking about your Google talk. If we could uh, abortion from controversy to civility. Now, I'm sure that all of us here in the pro-life movement kind of have the, the same collective question. How on earth did you get invited to go to Google to give a pro-life presentation? Yes, I have been asked that question a lot. So um, Google runs a program called Talks at Google where five days a week they bring in presenters to speak to their staff on a whole range of issues. And those presenters really are also on the range of the political spectrum from the left to the right to in between, Um, sometimes talking on more politically related topics and other times talking about their acting career or food and, and different things like that. So because this is a very common series for the staff at Google, staff who are familiar with presenters uh, can suggest those presenters to Google. And so there's a staff member at Google who was familiar with my work and my speaking. And when he became familiar with the program, he thought, oh, I should suggest Stephanie Gray as a speaker. So he reached out to me and asked me if I was willing, if he could submit my name. And of course, I said, well, Mm -hmm. yes, of course. But (laughs) I mean, what are the odds that they're going to Mm -hmm. accept me? But I did ask him for the list of other speakers they've had. And so he said, well, you just have to Google it. You know, you just uh, (laughs) go onto their YouTube channel and you can see all the different people they had have had on. And I saw that they had had um, Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood, uh, around or earlier this year, around the time that I was asked to present, uh, as well as they've had people um, like Francis Chan, you know, Christian leaders. And so I thought, gosh, maybe they would consider having me in. And so my name was submitted and lo and behold, it was accepted. And in April of this year, I gave the talk that was loaded to YouTube about three weeks ago. Oh, great. Well, as anyone who's listened to the presentation knows, it was a, it was a great talk. And uh, from what I understand, your pro-life presentation actually garnered uh, many more views than Cecile Richards presentation. So I think that was definitely beneficial yeah. for the pro-life movement. Yeah, we're hitting over 91,000 views at this point. It's only been up for a few right. weeks. So uh, that, that's been exciting that the pro-life message has mm. just reached so many and continues to. So that's thrilling. Yeah, great. So if you haven't seen Stephanie's talk, you can just go onto YouTube because it, it, that's where I actually watched it was on YouTube and just search for Stephanie Gray abortion, Google or the talk abortion from controversy to civility. Now, how did you, Stephanie, uh, become pro-life? And then how did you end up entering the uh, the pro-life movement to become a, a speaker? Mm. Well, you know, in a sense, I would say I, I can't remember a definitive moment where I 
became pro-life because pro-life was so a part of my life from my earliest memories. My parents were both very involved in the pro-life movement. My mom volunteered at a pregnancy care center. Uh, Both my parents would go to rallies and protests and marches, of course, bring my sister and I along. And so from a very young age, I knew what abortion was. I knew that there were girls in crisis who weren't married, who got pregnant, were thinking about abortion. And I knew my mom was their counselor who helped them through their pregnancy and went to see them and their babies in the hospital when the babies were born. Mm -hmm. So it was just something that I was well aware of. I loved babies and I was horrified that anyone would consider abortion. So Mm -hmm. as a a young child, I I put my conviction into practice and I started writing letters at the age of 12 and 13 and 14 to uh, being a Canadian to the premier of my province, British Columbia, where I grew up, as well as the prime minister of uh, our country. And I wrote these letters saying, you know what, you need to stop abortion abortion and you need to stop funding it with tax dollars and you need to make it illegal. And my name is Stephanie Gray and I'm 13 years old. <laughs> you know, So I was <laughs> right. very convicted that, that I needed to raise my voice for these children who had none. And that kind of laid the foundation for what would ultimately become my career in the pro-life movement. I went to university and planned to actually major in theater. But in my first year, I met, of course, someone very familiar to you and um, your podcast, and that's uh, Scott Klusendorf. And I was yeah, I think we've heard old and yeah, yeah, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> right. So I was, you know, first year in college, and I went to a conference for pro-life university students. In Canada, you could say it's uh, very similar to what you have in the States with Students for Life of America. And this okay. particular group was called the National Campus Life Network. It was for college students. And Scott was brought into Canada to spend the whole weekend training these students, of which I was one, in pro life apologetics and how to winsomely and persuasively defend the right to life of preborn children. And as anyone who has heard Scott would know, I was blown away by his whole message, his demeanor, his way of communicating. I thought, this is so logical and this makes so much sense. And he's nice about it as well. You know, you could right. you can have some people who really know the arguments well but don't know how to communicate it in a compassionate way. And Scott just seems to be the full package. And I very much came under the conviction that weekend that I was meant to do what he does. So very long story short, I ended up switching majors. I I ended up finishing, as I think you mentioned, in political science and uh, began speaking. And one door opened and that led to another door opening and another one. And and, uh, as I say, very long story short, I began full-time pro-life work as a public speaker in 2002 when I graduated. So that was a long time ago, Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think we're actually roughly the same age. I think you might be a year older. So 2002, I was out of high school myself. So yeah, okay, so it was, it was yeah. kind of a long time ago for me too. So I just turned 37 and I'm not afraid of it because I say I'm like wine <laughs> and I get better with age. So Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually close to turning 36 myself. So we are, we are pretty close to uh, close in age. So yeah, yeah. aside from, from the aforementioned Scott Klusendorf, we have some other mutual friends in the in the pro-life movement, namely uh, Steve Wagner of Justice for All and Josh and Tim Brom of Equal Rights Institute, who also, in, in whose niche in the pro-life movement is also to talk about not just giving the intellectual arguments, but also kind of appealing to the heart. And we want to find common ground with people and not necessarily just throw all of the information at them, but also to kind of 
hear where they're coming from and, and kind of get their stories and things like that. And so mm-hmm. your, your book uh, that we're going to talk about in a little bit, Love Unleashes Life, really goes into this. But you also kind of got a sense of that from your talk at Google as well. And so from, from personal correspondence with uh, between you and me from when you came out uh, to Florida a couple of years ago to do some outreach at the Florida universities. And I, I think the way that you talk about hearing people's stories and meeting people where they're at, I, I don't know what it was, but the, the way that you talk about it really kind of made it click for me. And so mm. you've always kind of been an inspiration to me in the pro-life movement itself, just by the way that you handle it. And you talked a bit about mm. in your presentation, talking about people who inspire and so the, the question kind of occurred to me that I'd like to kind of turn around on you now is who, who is it who inspires you? Mm. Well, thank you very much for, for all you said there. And, you know, I kind of have learned to communicate the way I have, I would say as a person of faith, ultimately from God's grace, secondly, from uh, study, thirdly, from practice, and fourthly, mm. from, yeah, uh, inspiring examples of people in my life who I model. And Scott certainly is one person who inspires me, you know, devoting his life um, to protecting the youngest amongst us who are entirely incapable of defending themselves and doing it so well in a way that he doesn't just win arguments, he wins people. And right. uh, it's, it's me that, of course, you mentioned our mutual friend, Steve Wagner, and I was really positively impacted by um, the work that Steve does with his ministry, Justice for All. When I went to visit his team many years ago, now I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2008 or nine, and they were doing outreach on a college campus in Oklahoma. And of course, I had done different pro-life exhibits uh, many years before, starting in 1999. And, and theirs was a similar exhibit, but the training that Steve provided, Steve and his team, uh, really even further deepened my own ability to really reach the heart as well as the minds of people. And, and I, I feel for myself that time in Oklahoma was really a turning point in helping me uh, connect with the very wounded and broken people that I meet. And that then very much got infused in the work that I did going forward and the exhibits that I participated in that I helped lead that, that I ultimately met you at. Uh, in terms of other, you know, people who inspire me just in general, you know, I would say, um, first of all, my own spiritual director is this amazing um, Catholic priest who's a monk, and he has an incredible conversion story where he got involved in, you know, a biker gang and a partying wildlife, and oh, wow. then came back. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible story. He actually, he was on EWTN once telling his whole story and his conversion uh, and had a radical conversion and um, came back to the faith, to Christ. And and then as a, in the course of that uh, conversion, ultimately decided that he was called to be a priest and a monk. And just that he lays down his life for other people, like the ways that he... Um, has helped me grow as a person. I can't even, you know, quantify that. There's just, it's hard to capture, but I am a better person because of him. And that's only because he's laid his life down to be of service to others. So I think ultimately people who inspire me are people who are outward focused, who are saying, who needs help and how can I help them? Of course, so then my parents are a great example of that because their whole life, um, has been, you know, oriented to my sister and I and the people around them who they see need help and then they help them. And, and so ultimately it's, it's people like that who inspire me and influence me. Oh, great. 
One thing I noticed as I was listening to your talk, and you have the same tendency in your book as well, is that you tend to favor the word preborn over the word unborn. Is that a stylistic choice, or is there a particular reason you prefer the one word over the other? Right. That's a great question. You know, I made that transition probably about eight years ago, and you know, I can't remember the exact turning point. I do know that one of my audience members, an elderly gentleman, came up to me and said, um, I once heard a woman refer, and he might have even said unborn, to the unborn child as the youngest of our kind. And he said, language really matters. And I thought that was such a beautiful, humanizing way to refer to the child. And through that language really show that it simply is an age difference between them and us. So that was one influence that got me on this trajectory of thinking, what language do I use to talk about the child? And youngest of our kind was a very positive life affirming one. So then of course the common lingo that, that I had been using the movement largely uses is unborn. And I think it was even one of my colleagues mentioned at the time, I don't know, unborn just doesn't have as much of a positive sound to it. And, and then we got thinking about the word, thinking, well, you know, you don't say you're un-anything else. You're not an un-teenager or an un-adult, but you might be a preteen, and you're just before the next stage. So then we got thinking, maybe we should use preborn instead of unborn. It has more of a humanizing sound to it. Not that unborn is dehumanizing. It's just that preborn sounds more humanizing because it's just before the next stage. And it's right. more consistent with other language we use. And so we thought, well, let's let's make the switch. And I remember the first talk I tried to make the switch. It was so awkward because I kept defaulting to my experience and saying unborn. And then I would correct myself and say preborn. So half the talk is unborn, right. the other half is preborn. But it didn't take yeah, okay. long. And eventually it caught on. And right. to the point that at least in Canada, I would say the word used now in reference to the child is largely preborn and not unborn, and I see that shift also happening in the states. Yeah, the way that I look at the term preborn versus unborn, I, I still tend to use the word unborn, but the way that I, I see the word preborn is that the prefix un means not, and the prefix pre means before. And so, to me, the word preborn kind of conjures the image of the preborn moving toward the state of being born, as opposed to unborn, kind of gives the idea of kind of remaining stagnant. That, that's kind of a, a way that I've traditionally seeing the difference between the two mm. terms. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And of course, uh, in the case of unborn, not born, they may, they may stay that way, as you say, stagnant if they're aborted, versus right. to say pre-born, it's just before birth with that more hopeful, mm -hmm. uh, subliminally right. hopeful perspective that birth is coming. Uh, it will happen. Yeah. So. Now, to kind of follow up on that previous question, after I had published uh, an article in Christian Research Journal, I received an email from somebody who was pretty critical of my article. And some of the things he was criticizing were a little bit more substantive. But one of the things that he would criticize is my usage of terms. And as you say, language matters. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the abortion choice movement has done has made great strides, basically, by controlling the language that we use when we talk about abortion. So I understand that aspect of it. But 
the person who had emailed me really criticized my use of the word unborn because he considered it, even though it's used by basically everyone, even people who support abortion, he took issue with my word choice of using unborn because he felt that it was an emotionally loaded term. So one of the, one of the things I think about when, you, when deciding whether to use the term preborn or unborn is that one reason that I tend to stick with the term unborn is because to me, this one person who emailed me notwithstanding, to me, the, the term unborn can seem to be a little less emotionally charged because it's a more common term than preborn. So what would you say in response to somebody who mm. said that we should avoid the, the use of the term preborn because it's kind of like a weird pro-life term as opposed to one that abortion choice people use, such as unborn? Right. Good, good. In, interesting point. Good question. Uh, you know, I think if, if I was, of course, in, engaging that person in dialogue, I would ask them, in what way is it emotionally loaded? And I would actually, through that question, compel them to give their reasoning for it. Because if you break the word down, as we did a moment mm. ago, it, it really yeah. is it's just accurate. It's factual. It's unmeaning not born, haven't gone through the process of birth. So, mm. so I would right. say, in what way is that emotionally loaded? I would make them defend that. Then even okay. if they could make the claim that that's emotionally loaded, then I would say, why is that a problem? I would actually challenge the idea that to appeal to the emotion uh, is, is bad. I know some people would say, well, you shouldn't, but we're not just, you know, logic kind of our heads, these robotic computers that just, you know, take information in and spit information out. We are like a, a, like a Mr. Spock kind of thing. Right. Exactly. And like we, we are a heart. We um, feel things. Our previous experiences can color our present interpretations of things, whether we realize we're affected by stuff or not. I mean, if you read books, even on marketing and sales, they talk about how, you know, you, you offer a free gift to someone. And then a short while later, they ask, you ask them to support your cause. And, and the, the thinking is that the free gift you gave will somehow have positively impacted them to make them more likely to give you your yes when you ask for financial support. So mm. we are impacted by all kinds of things and we can't remove emotion from the situation. I think we need to certainly be accurate, uh, but saying unborn is not inaccurate. It's, it's very accurate. And even the youngest of our kind, yes, I would say that is more humanizing and it's designed, I'll be very honest, to have that emotional impact on someone. But is at the end of the day, is it still accurate? Absolutely. They truly are the youngest of our kind. So I'm therefore bringing these two worlds together of the heart and the mind, appealing to the emotion as well as the intellect. A number of the things that we're talking about here regarding your talk at Google, there, there's a bit of overlap between that talk and your book. And so we might talk about some of these things a little more in detail once we get to your, to your book itself. But one thing that I really wanted to, to talk about was when you mentioned a book by Viktor Frankl, who was in the Nazi concentration camps. I thought your examples from Frankel were very good, especially in talking about how it's really a, a perspective thing that if we view our problems with a particular perspective, then we can justify abortion a lot easier than if we have a different perspective on the, the struggles that we go through. And so you mentioned that Frankel has sort of a a mathematical formula where despair equals suffering minus meaning. And so if you, if you mm -hmm. add meaning to the suffering, then that would give you a, a perspective and, and make the suffering seem less, 
I, I guess seem, make the suffering seem less like a, less of a terrible thing or more of like a necessary thing to go through as, as you uh, fulfill your meaning. So could you maybe talk a little bit more about, about that kind of idea? Sure. Yes. I, you know, I went on a tour of Poland in 2006. So we're talking 11 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And while there, I went to Auschwitz one, Auschwitz two, Birkenau, uh, a couple of the concentration camps that millions were killed in. And in preparation for that trip, I wanted to read about Polish history, culture, um, Holocaust history. And one of the books that I read was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Um, And that had a profound impact on me, just the book itself. And then, of course, being in the concentration camp and walking the same ground that such horrifying human rights violations had occurred on was was very, um, well, overwhelming, very powerful. Um, And what Frankel talks about is that ultimately when we cannot control circumstances such as being a prisoner in a concentration camp, we still can control our response to the circumstance. And there's something empowering about that because when you are victimized, when your rights are taken away, when so much is stripped of you, as was the case for him and, uh, his fellow victims, there can be this tendency to despair. And he wanted to empower not only himself, but the people around him and the people he ultimately helped as a survivor through his work as a psychiatrist. Uh, He wanted to empower people to let them know that the mind is very powerful and whatever things people take away from you they can't take away your power to choose how to respond to them. And as right. you mentioned, he came up with this equation, D equals S minus M. So despair is suffering without meaning. And he brings, brought that up because, of course, in the concentration camps, he experienced profound suffering. In his work as a psychiatrist, he saw people live with profound suffering. And there was this acceptance of circumstances that involve suffering that can't entirely be eliminated and so his attitude became okay well when I can't remove suffering entirely of course we ought to try to and we ought to work to alleviate suffering but when I can't remove suffering entirely how do I make sure in the face of that circumstance I don't despair and he said well the way I make sure I don't despair I don't increase the D is by increasing the M and if I can find more and more meaning in the very particular circumstance of suffering that I'm in, then my degree of despair is going to decrease and I'll be able to survive and and carry on in this setting. And of course, in my talk at Google, I gave the example of motivational speaker Nick Vujicic, an Australian now living in the United States, born without arms and legs. And he, as a young child, was bullied and made fun of so much that he was tempted to despair because he focused on his suffering, that his lack of limbs um, prevented him not only from doing what everyone else could do in the present moment, but even from the type of future he wanted that all his friends would have. And so he started to despair, thinking of what his lack of limbs prevented him from doing. And his despair was so serious that he almost committed suicide. Uh, As a young child, in fact, laying in the family bathtub, he almost rolled over and drowned himself one evening. Um, Thankfully, he didn't do that. And then came to a point where he started to see that his lack of limbs actually 
kind of uniquely positioned him to be able to reach people in a way he wouldn't be able to if he had four limbs. And so Doris started opening as a motivational speaker, and he's had incredible opportunities traveling the world and reaching people that, again, he would never have access to if he was like you or me. And so he started to see meaning in his suffering. He started to see opportunity in this obstacle of a lack of, of lack, lacking limbs. And so now he lives a full and joyful life. He's married. He has two children. And what I pointed out to my audience at Google is that his circumstance hasn't changed. He lacks the limbs today that he lacked in the bathtub that time he thought about drowning himself. So if the circumstances haven't changed, why is he not despairing? Because his attitude has. He started to find meaning and looking at the opportunities that uniquely exist because of his suffering. And and that's what we want to then do when it comes to the topic of abortion, when it comes to the circumstance of an unplanned pregnancy. We can't necessarily eliminate that S, that suffering, that the difficulty of the crisis, of the lack of, you know, support, of the less than ideal circumstances that a woman is pregnant in. But we can help that woman find meaning. Here's a child to love. Maybe you've never been loved, but here's an opportunity to love someone like you wish you'd been loved. And in loving that little child, you're going to experience a love that will blow your mind. It will be so powerful. You know, that's one example where where such an individual can find meaning. Um, Even her own need of support puts meaning into our life in that we have to step outside of ourselves and help such a woman in crisis. And, And in a sense, her suffering will unleash our love which makes for a happier, healthier, better world than if we all turned inwards and despaired. This might be a little more of a psychological question, so it might just be speculation on your part. I don't know if if he actually went into this in his book or not, but what do you suppose it was about Viktor Frankl that made him, well, not, not necessarily just not despair himself, but decided to take it upon himself to make sure that the other Jewish victims in the concentration camps didn't despair as well. Mm. Well, certainly, again, where we've come from and what our life experience has been, as I mentioned earlier, dramatically influences the present and the future. And in the case of Viktor Frankl, before the war, before he became a prisoner in the concentration camps, he was already a a doctor. He was already a practicing Mm. psychiatrist and had already worked with people who found themselves in times of despair and mental illness and and different challenges. So he already was a doctor of the mind. He had studied the mind. He had worked clinically with people. And so um, that put him in a very good position when he ultimately became um, a prisoner in the concentration camp to be able to have this right perspective and to try to help his fellow prisoners have the same we moved from 2002 to 2006, so we're moving a little bit forward here along the, the timeline. You talked about the captain of the Costa Concordia, who his ship had hit, I guess, hit the, the, hit the land or something and was starting to sink, versus Captain Chesley Sullenberger, who, after his airplane had impacted some Canadian geese, landed his airplane in the Hudson. Now, the, the difference between the two being the captain of the Costa Concordia left the ship early, whereas the Captain Sullenberger, after everybody had left his airplane, he walked the, the aisles twice to make sure that nobody had been left behind. So the difference between these two folks being that one did the selfish thing in looking out for his own life, and the other did the selfless thing 
and ab abiding by the duty that he had as the captain of the airplane and making sure everybody got off safely before he did. And so the difference being that people who do the right thing, even though it's hard, inspire us. And people who do the selfish thing do not. And mm -hmm. I myself am, am a, a nervous flyer. And so I've always kind of appreciated uh, Captain Sully and, and his quick thinking in, uh, in landing on the Hudson and getting everybody off the airplane safely. Yes, yes, and I appreciate how you've captured kind of the, the point that I made. And, you know, it's true that consistently, whether someone is pro-choice or pro-life, across the board there is this sense that what S Captain Sullenberger did was so right and so noble and worthy of emulation. And what the captain of that um, Italian cruise ship uh, did by abandoning ship um, while other passengers needed his help and some ultimately died uh, as a result of the crash, his abandonment to his duty is something we are repelled by. We know we ought not follow. Even if we have been selfish and we are selfish possibly at certain moments or in reality we all are at certain times. So even when we are, we know at least we shouldn't be. You know, So we know he isn't right. an example to follow whereas this other captain is. And so yes, using that to say what should we aim to emulate and obviously it's captain sullenberger so then you take that story and that principle and you apply it to the circumstance of an unplanned pregnancy acknowledging the crisis that the woman may be in and then pointing out that as the captain of the airplane sully had dependents who required his help the the pregnant woman has a dependent her preborn child who requires her help. And as we expect the vulnerability of the passengers to heighten the responsibility of the captain of the airplane, so too ought we expect that the vulnerability of the preborn child ought to heighten the responsibility of that child's mother. Right. Now, did you see Clint Eastwood's recent movie, Sully? I did. Yes, I did. Yeah, and what did I you had think read Sully's autobiography, so I was like, wait, okay. I know more to this story. And I, and wait, did that right. really happen? And so I was, I was, <laughs> had a lot of kind of internal talk going on in my mind as I was watching the film. But overall, it was a captivating film. Yeah, did you feel that the film was pretty much right on with the story? Or, I mean, I'm sure it took some liberties because it's a, a Hollywood production. But did you feel that it was mostly faithful to the source material, or did it take too many liberties for, for your taste? You know, it, it did, well, it basically included a lot of stuff that I was unaware of that mm. therefore made me wonder whether I just didn't know the facts or whether, yes, it was artistic license and they added more mm. to the story. So in terms of the facts of the crash, it was birds. You know, Sully was a good and virtuous person and had a very calm disposition all that was accurate you know the the passengers right. got off and he you know was last all that was right but then all that controversy about the plane simulations that needed uh, that were done and the claim that he actually potentially might have made the wrong choice by landing on the water and maybe he could have made a water landing um i to this day question whether that happened or that was hollywood so i don't know i don't know yeah. if you know but <laughs> I, I don't no in fact uh, i recently only uh, found out about the, the story of, of Captain Sullenberger 
because a, a YouTube uh, musician that I listened to wrote a song about the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that was, oh, okay. that was my first okay. experience with it. And then when I saw that the movie was coming out, I, I figured, you know what, I'm going to go watch it. I'm a nervous flyer, but I think I could sit through a movie in which uh, an airplane does a crash landing. And it actually filled me and with survive. some confidence. I would think that's oh, right, and survive. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there, there was yeah. actually a line in the movie Sully, which I was surprised by when I heard it, but then I, I went and did some research and realized that it actually wasn't true. One of the lines in the movie by one of the air traffic controllers was when, when Sully was going down toward the Hudson, he made the, the comment that no one has ever survived a water landing. And that surprised me oh, at first, but, yeah, then I went, yeah, but then I went home and, and I thought, you know what, there, there have been other planes that have landed on, on the water and people have survived, like one that landed in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and everyone on the plane was rescued about a half hour later. So that was probably just a, just a Hollywood insert to make it a little bit more dramatic, I, I would imagine. That would be. And in fact, that one you're referencing, I believe, was the flight from Hawaii to San Francisco or San Diego. Mm. And um, that landed in the Pacific Ocean. And the captain of that airplane was Captain Og. And in the book that Sully wrote about his life and his experience, he actually references that water landing where although the cargo in the cargo hold, there were exotic birds that all died. All of the humans got off the plane successfully and survived. But in that story, Captain Og also walked the aisle twice as water was filling the cabin to make sure no one was left on the plane. And then he was the last to get off. And so Sully knew of that story before his own experience of having to make a crash landing and that kind of uh, that connection was made between what he knew at the back of his mind about what that captain did to then what he did in Mm. the moment when crisis arose yeah okay well uh, we don't have any any callers just yet so we'll go ahead and move on then to talking about your book and in honor of uh, captain sullenberger i I have a, a transition song to go into that MCs all up in my engines Don't make me land this plane in the Hudson They got nasty intentions I got goose MCs in my engines I got goose MCs all up in my engines Trying to cause some malfunctions But I'm the captain, Chesley Sullenberger Of this rap game for these goose MCs Okay, so if you weren't pumped up before, you should be now (laughs) You know, Quentin, you have a knack for finding unique songs (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm a musician myself, and so I have a tendency to go and, and find those who are not so popular as musicians to find the more obscure stuff. And uh, that was a, a guy by the name of Zach Sherwin, who I discovered is actually Weird Al Yankovic's nephew, and I'm a huge Weird Al fan. Oh. So I was very pleased to come across uh, his his music as well. And so that was the song that first made me aware of Captain Sullenberger. And so that was Goose MC wow. by uh, Zach Sherwin. Yeah, so awesome. uh, if yeah, if you're out there listening and, and you're thinking to yourself, self, I really wish I could be part of this uh, discussion and pose a question. Well, you can. Uh, you can call us in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. So let's go ahead now and move on to your book, Love Unleashes Life. What actually prompted you to write this book? Well, you know, I had... Well, as I kind of indicated, after hearing Scott inspire me in 1999, I started doing my own public speaking that year and then went full-time in 2002. So for years, I've been speaking on the topic and frequently asked by audience members afterwards, oh, do you have a book? (laughs) And I would always say, 
uh, no, I don't. But my mentor, Scott Klusendorf, has written an excellent book called Pro-Life 101, and here's how you can get it. And so for many years, I would just point people in the direction of Pro-Life 101 um, mm. with the attitude that I didn't want to write for the sake of writing or for the sake of having right. my name on the cover of a book. Uh, I only wanted to write if I was contributing something that wasn't yet out there and would mm. somehow be helpful to people. And so as the yeah. years went on and as I took all that's so well written in Pro-Life 101 and applied mm. it to the you know, live conversations, you could say, that I was having at right. countless pro-life exhibits, as well as interactions with audience members after my talks, as well as the formal lectures and debates that I was doing. So I was applying all of these, all, all of this uh, apologetics. I started to develop some of my own analogies and some of my own line of questioning. And I found myself in situations where people would start to reveal on their life experience, some of which was very, very horrible. I mean, I... I remember one young college student, a male student, telling me that he had been sodomized. Um, another mm. college student told me that she had been at a party and she felt sick and she fell asleep and she woke up being raped. Uh, oh. Another student I met on a college campus told me that her cousin had committed suicide the night before and that she herself had you know, spent a lifetime being bounced around from one foster home to the next. And so as I was engaging in conversations where I had such a strong mind, I knew all the apologetics, but I started to be um, exposed to people's lived experiences, some of which were very traumatic and, and, and very uh, painful, I started to realize it wasn't enough to just have the intellectual arguments. And even it wasn't enough to know how to communicate those arguments in a kind and compassionate way. There was more that was needed. And sometimes what was needed was actually setting aside the arguments and just asking people how they're doing and whether they had sufficient help in their life and what they wanted me to know about what their experience had been. And so right. as I developed more and more in terms of how to better interact with people to win that person and not just an argument, I started to see, okay, maybe, maybe I have enough kind of new material that could be a great complement to what's already existing in the pro-life movement. And so long story short, that, that inspired me to finally, um, you know, settle down and, and write a book, which I did a couple years ago. Now, I, I really appreciate the attitude that you took toward the book, where you didn't just want to kind of add to the noise by just writing a book for the sake of writing it, but you actually wanted to contribute to the discussion. And mm -hmm. I, I think you certainly, I think you certainly accomplished that with your book. But, you know, I, I guess I've read my share of really pointless books. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, number one, you know, you only have so many hours in the day, but you only have so many days that you're alive. And so you really have right. to be selective about the, the kind of books that you read. And number two, it seems like if, if we want to be, you know, good stewards of, of the environment, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the environment and not wanting to you know, waste paper and those kinds of things. And so it really seems like if we, if we want to do good toward the environment, then we, we shouldn't be just publishing any book that comes along. And so I, I really appreciate that because it's, um, it's less of a, less of a struggle to know whether or not we should, we should read a book if, if a lot of care has been put into it. Now, mm. regarding your title, Love Unleashes Life, how did you come up with that title? What, uh, is there like a deeper meaning behind that or what's the story there? 
Yeah, well, there absolutely is. And some credit actually for that needs to go out to one of my editors, um, because when I put the book together, I didn't yet have a title. I, I've always, my, my big challenge is always getting compelling titles, even in my talks, you know, <laughs> right. hosts will say, what, what do you want to title your talk? And then I think, oh gosh, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. so titles have always right. been a challenge for me. And so when I wrote the book, I sent it to a, a group of editors and said, please give your feedback. Um, and of course it was a list of instructions, but one of the things I said, I'd love your ideas for titles. And so one of my editors, Victoria, was moved in particular by one point I make, I believe it's in chapter two of my book, and it's a story I'll tell in a moment. As a result of that story, she came up with the title suggestion from how I kind of framed the the story. And basically, the point that I make in, in, I think it's near the end of chapter two, is about an experience I had unrelated to abortion. Um, about nine years ago, I went to Eastern Europe, to Romania, because I just always had this dream to go and rock babies. As I mentioned, like I grew up in the pro-life movement, loved babies. The moment I could, was old enough to babysit, I wanted to be a babysitter. And I've just always had this dream to go be a baby rocker. And I heard this existed, mm. that people just sit and hold babies. And so, uh. of course, in Eastern Europe, you have... Um, uh, after all the different communist regimes, you, there were a number of different orphanages where children were um, abandoned and needed to be adopted or fostered or you know cared mm-hmm. for. And so yeah. I heard about a trip where you could go to a small village in Romania where there was a failure to thrive clinic. In this particular clinic, some of the children weren't orphans. They would eventually be returning to their homes, although some were orphaned. But the common condition amongst all these children is they had what's called failure to thrive, which is where children aren't doing well physically and emotionally because they're not being um, stimulated enough relationally in terms of being held and cuddled and interacted with. But also physically, some of their families were too poor to be able to provide sufficient nutrition. So because they had this condition, they were at this clinic to get well, both with food and attention and care. And then... um, depending on on the child some would go back home and some would go into the system so i went and spent several weeks at this clinic and my mom came along she is now a retired nurse but has of course a lifetime of experience being a nurse and um, she was assigned to care for a little girl who had just come to the clinic and she was six months old and she weighed only six pounds I mean, we're talking most newborn babies aren't that light. And this little right. girl was already six months out of the uterus and, and smaller than a lot of newborns. And she has yeah. very severe fetal alcohol syndrome and a lot of the physical indicators of that condition. Um, and she was, I mean, the, the word to describe her is really lifeless. She showed no emotion. She never cried. And of course, you know, a parent who deals with a colicky baby might for, you know, momentarily be jealous saying, oh, I love a child to cry. But when your right. child never cries, of course, that's a sign that the child learned very quickly. No one responds if they cry. So what's the point? So mm. the, the tragic reality for this child was she was never attended to or given enough attention that um, crying would elicit a response. And so she was flat, lifeless, emotionless. But my mom, of course, being assigned to her, 
loved on her and, you know, held her and cuddled her and sang to her and rocked her and kissed her. And within a week, this baby transformed. She started crying because she knew someone would respond. She would laugh if you tickled her, whereas before, if you tickled her chin, there was no no movement or reaction whatsoever. Um, she came alive. And so I, and I, I finish off the chapter by talking about how we need to love people because when we do, like my mom loves this little child, it unleashes their life. And so my editor, Victoria, emailed me and she goes, I think it should be called Love Unleashes Life. And and immediately the moment I saw that title, I thought, that's it. That's what I want this book to be about because I then yeah. relate that to my interactions with some of these broken students that I mentioned a few moments ago. And when I have really cared for the person in front of me as well as preborn children and they've been able to see I'm not just there to talk about the babies as important as that is but I also care for them and their well-being and I value them as much as I value the preborn and as, a, mm. as some of these students have really sensed how much I care for them I yeah. have seen it unleash their life it, it, like the spirit of some of these students has just come alive Um, They have softened and been more pensive when at the beginning of conversations they've been bitter and angry or they've become more joyful when they were more somber at the beginning as a result of our exchange. And so that's where I realized, okay, love unleashes life, that whether you're preborn and it's the preborn, it's the mom who's loving that baby or whether it's a broken college student and it's the pro-lifer loving that person. In either case, we can physically or figuratively unleash life. Yeah, you know, that, that's a, a great story. And I've heard some similar ones as well. Like I I don't know how long ago this was, but I heard about, for example, a, a baby that was born, looked like he was born stillborn, that he, he wasn't alive. And the mom wanted to just hold him for, one, for you know, once before they went and buried him. But then mm. like five or 10 minutes later, the, the child ended up actually coming to life just based on the interaction that she had with him. And right. I, I think of, you know, I think of, of people as well. You know, we often talk about personhood, especially how it relates to the abortion issue. And you have people discussing, well, the unborn are persons from fertilization because every human is a person and they have a human nature and being a person is about the kind of thing you are. And then you have the abortion choice people saying, well, no, being a person is about the functions you can perform. You have to be self-aware or you have to be sufficiently conscious or sufficiently sentient or all of these different kinds of things. And I, I, I think also of a, of a philosopher, his name escapes me at the moment, uh, but I'll, I'll put the article and his name in the, in the uh, notes to, to this podcast. But he talks about how personhood is not, is not a, a thing, whereas it, it kind of pops into existence and there it is. But, you know, there, there is a, a sense in which being a person is tied to your functions, but you actually have to have the, examples in your life in order to be able to function as a person. And if you don't, you know, you think of like the the feral children who are raised by wolves and can't integrate into human society unless they're actually trained how to behave like a human. And so being a person, you really need those examples. And so in order to, in order to become a person, you have to have good examples of of persons being persons in order for that kind of thing to to happen. And so that's kind of what I, what, what comes to mind when I think about this idea of love unleashing life. Mm-hmm. Well, and what what strikes me with what you've said, excuse me, something in my throat there. Um, oh, no problem. What strikes me is, as I, as I mentioned in my book, I have a section about distinguishing person from personality, because yeah. you know, you know what someone might say. Well, 
what makes us a person, what they really mean is what makes us good or what makes us nice or what makes us loving. Um, right. What's your personality? Are you, are you gentle and kind or are you bitter and angry? Um, mm. So the, the term, you know, are you, uh, you know, be a person or, or be as a person ought to be is to imply the expectation of compassion and kindness. But then, of course, in the abortion debate, there's the more philosophical aspect where people mm. will say, the child is not a legal person, and by that they mean not worthy of protection under the law because they lack certain functions that they need in order to be considered equal to us. And that's, that's where we get into problems. This child, by virtue of being human, ought to be considered a legal person, and their personality is going to develop over time. I would say one of the you know, key distinguishing features between, let's say, us and other species is love the ability to have connection with another and that that um, other oriented perspective but that even that has to develop you know an, a preborn child and an infant is going to receive a lot of love and they're um, but they're not developed enough to be able to choose to love the people around them and of course if you're around a toddler you can just see how selfish they can be <laughs> but, right, right. but ultimately the, the human person grows through experience of receiving love into someone who can give love now one of the important features of your book that you talk about is that we should tell stories. Well, what is the benefit of telling stories? Why is that so important in our interactions with, with people? Yes, stories make concepts understandable. Stories take principles that we ought to live by, that we ought to embrace, and they make it easier to embrace because we can see how they're lived out. So if, you know, I were to just say to you, be nice to someone who's in need. Well, yes, you should be nice to someone who's in need. Um, and hopefully you'll embrace that. But it's still, in a sense, it's just a statement. But if I said, imagine someone you love was in a strange country where they didn't understand the language. And the person you love is alone and they're scared and they don't know what's going to happen next. Um, they are also hungry, but they don't know how to communicate their hunger. And imagine someone comes along who speaks their language and knows how to communicate also with the locals. Your loved, per your loved one is in need. How would you want someone who knows your loved one's language as well as the locals' language, how would you want that person to interact with your loved one? Would you want to want them to help your loved one in a time of need? And then, of course, everyone, your emotions are are um, gripped in in such a very simple little thought experiment. Your um, imagination is now activated, and you're perhaps even have an image in your mind of the very person you're thinking of that you love in particular. Perhaps you have an image of a foreign country or a stranger coming along, and so right. now I've activated the mind, I've activated the senses, and then. I know by doing that, when I say, how would you want the stranger to interact with your loved one, the person's instinctive reaction is going to be, well, I'd want them to help them. And I'd want them to, you know, go with them into town and communicate that they want to buy food and that they need a place to stay. And then you can say, okay, so looks like we both agree that the general principle should be upheld that we ought to help people in need. And yeah. you, you, you get further in an encounter with someone when that principle is communicated through the lens of a story, like I just did. 
now this kind of goes along with the with the previous question, but on, on top of telling stories, you also talk a lot about listening to people. So why is it that we want to listen to people instead of just sharing with them the truth about abortion and letting the truth about abortion you know, do its thing and, and convince the person of the truth of our position? Yeah, we want to listen because ultimately every single person is unique. You know, I've, I've heard it said before, and I love the phrase, that each of us is unrepeatable and irreplaceable. Mm. And in being unrepeatable and irreplaceable, we also experience things differently from one another, and we receive things differently. And, you know, you can have two siblings grow up in the same environment, but react very differently to that because of their uniqueness and their specific personality types and, and who their peers were and so on and so forth. So as much as we need to know, let's say, you know, all the pro-life responses to pro-abortion arguments, we cannot assume that the individual in front of us saying something we once read in a book um, is coming from the exact same perspective as the person we read about in the book. And so by listening, we really begin to hear the uniqueness to their experience and their perspective so we can meet that person where they're at and, as, as I said before, win them and not just the argument. But we can't win the person if we don't know the person, and we can't know the person if we don't listen to the person and, and ask open-ended questions. You know, wh- where does your passion come from? Um, yeah. You know, have you always held this view? Did, did that view... Is, is Oh, it's a new view. Oh, okay, well, what, what view did you hold before? Well, I'm curious, mm-hmm. when did it change and why did it change? And, and as you ask those kinds of open-ended questions, the person is going to reveal so much that that will then give you ideas for the, the types of arguments and questions and stories and points that will most resonate with them that you should use. In your book, oh, well, in, in general, too, you, you talk about how one of the arguments that we can use as far as what grounds the, the wrongness of abortion, it, if we're, you know, provided that we're talking about the intellectual arguments now and we're, uh, you know, we're past the phase of, of the stories and questions and those kinds of things, that one of the ways that we can ground the wrongness of abortion is that the, the uterus inside the woman's body, while it is a part of her body in that it's connected to her body and it's inside her body, it's really more for the unborn embryo and fetus because the function of the uterus itself is to, is to keep the developing embryo and fetus alive while it develops to the point at which it can survive outside the womb. Now, I, I know other pro-life thankers use teleological arguments, such as Frank Beckwith and Chris Kayser, uh, who argue, for example, that the function of sex is reproductive, and so that grounds the, the woman's and the man's obligations to care for the developing offspring. But I think you and, and Trent Horn are probably the only two that I've actually heard specifically use this argument regarding the teleology or the, the natural and the natural function of the woman itself, grounding the obligation for the woman to let the unborn embryo or fetus use the womb. And so, you know, I myself am a, I'm a Christian, and I know you are too, but I have uh, friends who are, who are not Christians uh, in the pro-life movement. For example, the, the folks at Secular Pro-Life, who kind of argue a different way regarding what grounds the wrongness of, of abortion. And I know that some of them have taken uh, issues with these arguments in the past, and I, I'd kind of like to, to give you some of their objections to this womb teleology argument, and I, I'd like to get your thoughts on how you would respond to these. Sure, sure, go ahead. Okay, so the first one is that they would argue that the function of 
of the reproductive organs, the, the vagina is to accept the, the male member, the penis, and yet it's considered rape, and it's made illegal for a man to use a woman's vagina against her will. So it seems that they, they would say this, this idea doesn't necessarily ground an obligation to let the fetus use it against her will, because in the same way that a woman is not obligated to let the man use her sexually against his will, even though their reproductive organs are made to fit together. Yeah, very, very interesting point. A couple things come to mind. I think when I raise the argument that the fetus has a right to the uterus because the uterus was created or essentially exists primarily for the preborn child um, and to to care for the preborn child, that comes after first asking what is the nature of the relationship. So before we ask what is the nature of the uterus or what is the nature of the penis or the vagina, we have to ask ourselves what is the nature of the relationship. So in the case of not talking about pregnancy, but a man and a woman, are they going to have sex and can one claim the right to the other person's body because their parts fit together? Before, uh, do their parts fit together? Yes. Were they designed to fit together? Yes. But should they go together? Can you force yourself on someone else? Well, no, because you first have to ask what is the nature of the relationship? And the nature of the male-female relationship, first of all, is one of um, civility and friendship in terms of every human being. We ought to be kind to everyone. Whether we then engage in a romantic, exclusive relationship with another person and sex become an expression of the uniqueness of that relationship that is withheld from other relationships um, comes down to whether those two people in an interdependent way, essentially as equals to one another, um, decide to have a type of exclusive relationship in which sex becomes a manifestation of the uniqueness of what they are compared to other people. And you can look to the nature of the body and see that the uh, when a couple has sex, for example, hormones are released that are considered the bonding hormones that make you feel emotionally more connected to the person you've had sex with than other people that you haven't had sexual experiences with. Um, and then, as, as you referenced with um, some of those philosophers there, that yes, there's also the natural possibility of pregnancy. So our bodies almost communicate a language, you could say, where through the act of sex, two interdependent people um, bond with each other, which reflects the exclusivity of their relationship, um, and have the possibility of having offspring, which also reflects their relationship because Ideally, offspring should be brought into an environment where there's stability and unity, where they will have their their needs met. Um, And so the nature of that relationship, therefore, requires the couple to consent to how they want to express their love. And they can't force other people, even, even the person they're in relationship with, to do something they don't want. So there's all kinds of ways a couple in an exclusive relationship might express Um, their concern and affection for the other and love for the other. Sex is one way. Um, Kissing is another way. Hugging is another way. And, but the nature of that relationship is it involves discussion and, and a mutual respect of the other person where there is consent and agreement about how they express how they ultimately feel. Um, And, and I would also add that sex 
um, is not necessary for survival. Now, some people might make that claim, but we <laughs> oh, know right, there's yeah. been no tombstone that said he or she died because they didn't get sex. So then I would say, then once you have that, we understand the nature of the relationship, what sex is, that the two people need to consent as a way of communicating their mutual affection. Then if they... No, this doesn't happen. But if they happen to say, well, how do we actually have sex? I just don't know. Well, then obviously the nature of our bodies show how it should happen and how the parts ought to fit together and how they were made to go together. And that you can then conclude from all the other things we discern. Okay, so now take that and let's go back then to the issue of the uterus. Before we ask ourselves, What's the nature of the uterus? We first have to ask ourselves, what is the nature of the parent-child relationship? And a parent-child relationship is different from a, you could say, a spousal or lover-type relationship, whereas with that latter category, you have um, interdependent people. In the case of a parent-child relationship, you have a dependent individual on an, who's dependent on an independent individual. Um, You have the the nature of the relationship is very different. In the case of a parent-child relationship, you have one of duty and responsibility to meet the basic needs of the dependent party that are necessary for that party's survival. Getting back to the point that I made a moment ago, that sex is not necessary for survival, so no man or woman can claim a right to have sex with another person's body on grounds that if I don't get this, I will die. But in the case of a parent-child relationship, we're talking about basic needs needing to be met in order for survival. And those basic needs being, you know, food, um, clothing, or some kind of protection, and shelter. So right. in the case of um, pregnancy, the preborn child, like a born child, has a right to the parent's duty to care for the basic needs of the more vulnerable party, um, food, clothing, and shelter. It just so happens that the preborn child at a certain stage of her development can't be outside the body, needs to be inside the body, and so the uterus acts as the source of food through the umbilical cord being connected to the mom, the the shelter and and the, the protection needed, not actual clothing, but needed for that child at that stage of development. So then someone might say, well, you know, a born kid might need my kidney. And just because I'm the parent of the child, I shouldn't have to give my kidney to the child. But we see that's different. And that is where once we've established the nature of relationship and the basic needs that need to be met, we can then say, okay, what's the nature of the uterus versus the nature of the kidney? So if we agree that parents have a responsibility to meet the basic needs of their children who are dependents, while they're equal in value, they're not equal in capability. So in a sense, it's an unequal relationship versus a, a spousal or a lover relationship. So once we've established the nature of the relationship, we then say, okay, just because you're a dependent on the parent, it doesn't mean you have a right to just anything. You can't claim a right to the parent's kidney. Why not? Well, the kidney exists in the parent's body for the parent's body and is not needed for your basic survival because you have your own kidneys. Now, if one of your kidneys is failing, that's a tragedy that we ought to try to prevent or or fix in some way, but it doesn't 
um, it's it, it, it basically someone is dying from a disease. Now contrast that with the preborn child in the uterus. The uterus, that's where we then say, exists more for the preborn child than it exists for the parent and is equivalent to food, clothing, and shelter, meeting the basic needs of a dependent at that stage of development. And unlike a case of a kidney where you have someone whose own kidneys aren't doing their job and therefore they need a little extra help, they're dying from some type of disease. The preborn child isn't dying from any disease. The preborn child is living and happens to be in the environment, the body part, the uterus that was made for that child. What, what do you think of that? Oh, no, I, I think that's a great response. Nothing I, I have really to add you know, or speak to. So, yeah, I, I, thought, that, I thought the response is really good. The, the second objection that they have is they're basically questioning the premise of teleology itself. And they would say that just because something evolves a particular way, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing or that it grounds some sort of obligation toward us. And that's where we want to then say it's not just about asking about the nature of the uterus. It's first asking about the nature of the relationship and then saying, okay, if I have this basic duty to care for my vulnerable dependent, then to what degree do I need to do that? And that's where we then look at the nature of the thing. And and when people have an objection to looking at the nature of, of something, um, they really are, I would say, ignoring a very common practice in the field of medicine. You know, when you go to your doctor, I would never go to my doctor if I was having 20-20 vision. But I would right. go to my doctor if things were blurry. And I would go to my doctor and say, something's wrong. I can't see properly. And for me to claim something's wrong, I can't see properly, is to imply I understand the nature of my eyes is that they ought to see and they ought to be able to see a certain way. And that for me to judge there's something wrong is to imply my eyes aren't working according to nature. If I went to my doctor and said something is wrong, my ears aren't seeing, my doctor would pink slip me and you know send me to a mental health ward because mm-hmm. My ears aren't supposed to see. So we appeal to nature all the time in the field of medicine to know whether we ought to, you know, administer chemotherapy because there's a tumor or not administer chemotherapy because it's just an organ that isn't a tumor. It's just sticking out or, or you know, whatever the case right. be. So, so I, w- I would say to such an individual, we already look to the nature of things um, as, as a common practice to know when we should correct or not correct things. So then the question is, in the case of a fetus or an embryo in a womb, ought we correct that or not correct it? Well, we only ought remove the fetus from the womb if the fetus shouldn't be there or if there is some you know, pathology present, let's say cancer, that we specifically have to target because it's you know, threatening the fetus and threatening the mother's life. But the point is, should the fetus be removed from the uterus or should the fetus not? Well, we can't answer that until we know whether the fetus ought to be there and whether there's something that's gone wrong in nature or whether something is going right. And then if the person argues, well, okay, fine, I'll admit it's going right, but I still don't want the fetus there. Well, then it comes down to what's the nature of the relationship and do parents have a responsibility to meet the needs of their offspring or not? Yeah. And this is an idea that I encounter with 
fair regularity, the whole rejection of teleology. And my understanding is it goes back to David Hume, who I believe lived in the 19th century. I might be mistaken on that point, but he uh, argued that there was no, that, you know, there's no regularity in nature. And so that idea kind of caught on amongst atheists at the, at the lay level. But the thing is that not, not just the field of medicine, but if you're going to reject that there, that there is teleology, natural ends and functions, uh, in nature, then you basically have to throw out the whole scientific enterprise because science relies on the regularity of things. Right, right. Yeah, and objective okay. measurements and, yeah. Right. So their third objection then would be that it's not just her uterus that goes toward keeping the embryo or fetus alive, but it's her entire reproductive system which is being used for the purpose of reproduction. So it's like a whole whole body kind of thing and not just one specific specific bodily organ that's going toward it. So if someone were to make that point, I would acknowledge that indeed that is the case. So while the uterus very specifically on a monthly basis is getting ready for offspring, um, I certainly acknowledge that it's not just the uterus that works to house the child, that if the mother herself dies or if other parts of her body aren't doing well, then her ability to maintain um, caring for the child is going to be um, hampered, for sure. I'll acknowledge that. Then my question to such an individual would be, what is your point? What does acknowledging that her whole body is needed to care for this child, um, what does acknowledging that do to advance an agenda in favor of abortion? And then yeah, I would make it, a comparison. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if I had to guess, it would be something along the lines of that it's not just an individual organ that's being used, but now it's her whole body. So it seems like bodily rights arguments then could step in and save the day for the abortion choice advocate. That would be my guess if I had to guess what they would respond with. And that's where if, if they were, yes, then to say overall it's just the whole body's being used, then I would make the comparison to the born child and say, look, when a caregiver, be it the mother, the father, or someone else who has the legal duty to care for a child, when a caregiver – cares for an infant they're using their whole body and they might not be using their internal organs the way they are when they're pregnant but it is a whole person activity you know right. you are using your arms to lift the child and you're using your chest to to embrace the child and hold the child up when you burp the child unless you do the modern you know kind of hold the baby <laughs> in the front while the baby's sitting on your lap thing so now you're using your lap you know like we're right at the end of the day, the objection that, that such an individual would be proposing, it's not just the, the uterus, it's really her whole body, actually brings us down to what the real issue is, which is it's her whole person. It's all of her. And that's right. Parents, when they become parents, are giving all of themselves, whether they really realized it or not. It truly right. is an all-in type relationship. Um, and, and I think what's sad with the abortion debate is all too often the starting point is neutral or negative when it really ought to be positive, that the preborn child is being looked at as an inconvenience at best or an intruder at worst, mm -hmm. and instead the attitude should be, I've just won the lottery, I have an unrepeatable, irreplaceable individual who needs me and who I can influence to be an amazing person 
to better this world. Mm. And I get the, the beauty of the relationship of such a familial bond with this individual that especially when pregnant, I am the only person in the entire world for the history of this individual's existence, both now and in the future. I am the only individual who will have ever been that intimately connected with this child. I mean, our, our attitude should be one of awe and wonder, not one of, you know, ugh and despair. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely tracking with you there. I, I, I like that response as well. This last response that I have for you was actually one that I heard in a recent debate that Trent Horn had with David Boonin. And I actually interviewed Trent last month here on my program. And so I got his thoughts on how he would respond to this dilemma. But I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well. Now, David Boonin's case was basically revolved around the legal case of McFall v. Shemp, in which McCall, uh, McFall needed some bone marrow. Shemp, who was a relative of McFall, refused to donate his bone marrow to McFall when McFall needed it. And of course, the, the court decided that while what Shemp is doing is unconscionable in not donating his, his bone marrow, the law then cannot force Shemp to give McFall his bone marrow, even if he needs it to survive. And so the dilemma then that David Boonin raised against this womb teleology argument is that either a woman's womb is for her own child or for any child. If a woman's womb is for her own child, then setting aside the ethical difficulties of, of surrogacy for a moment, uh, you would have to agree that some abortions would be permissible, such as abortions in which a surrogate has the wrong embryo implanted into her womb. But if it's for every child, then you would have to concede that we do have a moral obligation, which should translate into a legal obligation to provide blood, bone marrow, and non-vital organs to anyone who needs it. So how would you respond then to the dilemma that David Boonin has, has erected against that? Oh, well, okay, this is going to be fun. First of all, before I give you my response, <laughs> I would like to say I have not heard Trent's response, but I'm really <laughs> interested after I give you mine <laughs> for you to tell me what Trent said, because I think Trent has a brilliant mind and uh, we work mm. closely together and, and I love um, how he thinks. So I'll tell you what yeah. how I think and uh, what, what okay, comes and, to my mind. So, yeah. And yeah. just so we're clear, uh, I'm not going to be comparing your two answers and I'm not going to be grading your answer versus Trent. So, <laughs> so feel free to, to give your answer with, without any, any sort of uh, reticence or hesitation. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, So I would say, you know, in terms of does the uterus exist for um, the woman's offspring? Yes. And saying yes does not mean when exceptional circumstances arise, there isn't a responsibility in the moment, which I'll get to in just a moment. So my first point would be parents have a responsibility to meet the basic needs of their offspring, food, clothing, and shelter, as I said a moment ago, and maintaining a pregnancy and the nature of the uterus and the woman's body is such that it's morally equivalent to providing food, clothing, and shelter to a born minor. Obviously, once a child becomes an adult, they're no longer a dependent and therefore can't claim their parents' care for them the way that they they once did as a child. Um, So then the question becomes, as he's rightly pointed out, well, what if a couple chooses IVF and have accidentally the wrong embryo is implanted in them? 
So if we argue that the uterus exists for your offspring, but we know genetically this embryo mistakenly implanted is not your offspring, could you use forcible removal from your uterus because this child doesn't have a right to your uterus? And so I would say that when we go against nature, bringing up nature again, but the right. reality is if we don't use technology to create children in labs and we just have sex with people and in the context of that a child may come about, the scenario he's created will never happen. Um, or referencing the certain areas he's referencing. So the question is, when man makes humans in labs and other humans consent to having those really tiny humans implanted in them, within the nature of that procedure, there is the risk that the wrong human could be implanted. It might be a very small risk. It might be 0.00001% of the time it could happen, but it's right. always a possibility that that could happen. And therefore, I would say that because we have a responsibility to meet the basic needs of vulnerable individuals, particularly children who are incapable of defending themselves, the argument I would suggest is that the parent who has uh, the, a genetically unrelated child placed in her uterus in error still has a responsibility to allow that child to grow in development through to birth because that child is incapable of caring for herself and has a right to her basic needs. And food, clothing, and shelter, the uterus in this case, is the basic need. And so I would analogize it to if I, you know, am out in the woods and I'm on vacation and I'm an eight-hour drive away from um, everyone else, um, and there is a baby in the woods with me, I discover when I get to my cabin, sorry, that there's a baby there. So I get into the cabin and there's a baby and there's no adult who's capable of caring for the child. I might say, I didn't consent when I re rented this Airbnb. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> right. didn't consent for an infant to be left behind. Um, maybe you did not consent to that. But by virtue of the infant's vulnerability and inability to care for herself, the infant has a right to food, clothing, and shelter. And the moment there's an adult around who could meet the food, clothing, and shelter requirement of that infant, and there are no other adults around to take on that responsibility, then I would argue we absolutely have a duty to meet the basic care required for survival of that infant and therefore i would say that is why the woman has a right has a duty rather to maintain the pregnancy of a child not genetically related to her yeah i, I think that's a i think that's a great response i actually don't remember specifically what trent's response was uh, i can actually oh, i, I can you're go killing back me. You're killing well no no no, no, no <laughs> what, what I, was, I was gonna say I, I can go back i can review that and then i'll just email it to you later so that you know sounds um, good sounds yeah good. i do it sounds to me like your response, if I remember, if I'm remembering part of his response correctly, it sounds like your response is pretty much along similar lines as, as his was, because I do remember he argued that even if we say that a woman's womb is just for her own child, it doesn't necessarily follow then that if she has the wrong 
embryo implanted into her womb that she is then justified in removing it because you do have to kill the embryo in order to remove it. And so if it's a human, a human being, it's still wrong for us to kill that human being, even if it's been implanted in the wrong place. And so I, I think his response was pretty similar to yours in that it just doesn't follow that she would have the right to, to kill the embryo if she had the wrong embryo implanted, if her womb, in fact, is for her own children and not for other children as well. Right. Well, you know what they say, great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So great okay, questions so, so, though. Yeah. And I, I think my, my, uh, my friends at uh, SPL for, uh, for coming up with those objections as well, because I did want to, to go through those a little bit. And I, I remember that they had had some uh, issues with that in, argument in the past. And so hopefully uh, your responses will be, uh, you know, enlightening for them and cause hmm. them to, to think about about the argument a little better, because I personally think that the argument is a good one. I, I think it's I think it's successful, uh, but again, you know, I believe that there is uh, such things as nature's and natural ends. In fact, I uh, I ground my pro life position in uh, Aristotelian metaphysics. Uh, I, I'm what you, even though mm. I'm a Protestant myself, I come from what would be considered the the Thomistic tradition as far as philosophy is concerned. So even though I don't necessarily right. agree with all Catholic doctrines. Obviously, the, the core tenets of Christianity we hold in common. But as far as the philosophy goes, I think the philosophy is, is spot on. And so I approach the pro-life issue from the uh, Aristotelian Thomistic view as well. So Great. Uh, something you said in your book was very helpful, that if the abortion choice person that you're talking to focuses like a laser beam on one circumstance, then they probably have past history with that circumstance, and that's causing them to have emotional barriers to accepting the pro-life argument rather than intellectual barriers. In fact, I remember mm-hmm. quite vividly yeah, I, I remember quite vividly one young lady that I talked to at a campus outreach at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, when I was there with, with Justice for All. Uh, I would share with her the science of embryology and the philosophical arguments for the pro-life position. And no matter what evidence I brought forth, she just ignored all of it and kept asserting with all confidence that the unborn are not human beings. And when I asked her why she didn't believe it was a human being, she just kept asserting it's because it needs to be able to breathe on its own and it's the woman's choice what to do with it. And so I, I didn't actually ask her if she knew anybody who had an experience in that regard, but it led me to believe that she or someone she cared about had a history with abortion, and she couldn't accept that the unborn are human beings because she'd have to believe that person, whoever it was, had actually killed her child. And so I'm certainly capable of empathizing with people, as I have uh, I have a, a, some, uh, well, a lot of uh, trauma in my own past that has led me to struggle with depression and anxiety. But what I have a difficult time with, uh, and I, I love how, how you address it, because that's something that you have a definite advantage over me regarding talking to uh, abortion choice people and people who have had these situations in their past. What I have a difficult time with is how these emotional barriers cause people to justify killing or dehumanizing people. To me, you know, I'm, I'm a person of logic. I know that no matter what trauma I went through in the past, if I were to dehumanize and justify killing and torturing people, even people who are not yet born, uh, I'd be no better than the people that I grew up with. And so this is just kind of a disconnect that I have between people who are struggling with these past situations. So is there like any sort of, I guess, any sort of advice you can offer to someone like me who... Mm who just has a hard time kind of uh, understanding the people with these emotional barriers as opposed to the intellectual ones. Right. 
you know, what comes to mind right away is that everyone responds to trauma differently. And so you've been given a grace to be able to see even with the sufferings you've gone through in your past that you ought not act out that anger or hostility or frustration on another innocent party. Um, not everyone, though, has been given that grace to see it. And so there, but, but just as, as you pointed out, anxiety and depression is how you manifest dealing with the trauma of your past. Maybe they don't manifest it in the same way, and they, it, for them it becomes more of an attitude towards others than it is even an attitude towards themselves. Again, this is where we see the, the complexities of the human person. And, and why, just as an aside, I'll, I'll point out, people will sometimes ask me, you know, if I want to do work, like you what should I study and I used to say oh I really recommend history or philosophy and well I think those are good fields to study and obviously influence my my work I now tell people study psychology (laughs) because Mm -hmm. uh, the more we understand the human brain and how to help people um, on on, on an emotional intellectual emotional and mental level um, the more fruitful I think our encounters will be so, so that's what comes to mind first. The next thing I would point out is, as, as you've pointed out from my book, is, yeah, our, our past experiences very much can cause us to put up a wall when it comes to receiving certain messages. And so I think one of the best things pro-lifers can do when there is that laser beam focus, you know, where people say, it doesn't matter if she's been raped, she needs an abortion. And we give all the intellectual arguments and they still say, it doesn't matter if she's been raped, she needs an abortion. That's where an open-ended question like, um, do you know anyone who has been a victim of sexual assault? Um, And then if they say yes, and you yourself know someone, then you can respond back with, well, I know someone too. And that might lead then to a whole conversation where they end up sharing uh, where, where they're coming from, or, or to ask, where does your passion come from? Um, to ask, have you always held the view that abortion is needed in cases of rape? Or is this a view that you adopted over time? And then if it is a view you adopted over time, when did you adopt it? And it's, it's those questions which aren't as pointed as saying, you know, is this a personal experience for you, which you, you can't ask because it would be insensitive, especially if their answer is, yes, this was a personal experience, which then they're not likely right. to reveal if you say, has this been a personal experience for you? So rather than a pointed question, these other questions might provoke them to reveal or share something, but they aren't as pointed um, as, a, as a direct question. But then once they begin to reveal, well, there's the opportunity for an expression of sympathy and ensuring their own well-being and safety. And, and then, again, you know, you can only, as I even point out in my book, you can only guide people in advance of these scenarios so far. Because the reality is it's only when you're in the moment with a specific person that you will have to make the judgment, what's the next best thing for me to say? What's the next best story for me to tell? What's the next best question for me to ask? And, and only upon really listening to the person in front of you can you answer that. I can tell people, as I have in my book, what questions and stories and points I made in specific encounters with specific people to give people a sense of what direction these, in, these conversations could go in. But ultimately there is no 
perfect formula. It's about seeking to understand the person and realizing we all kind of rounding this point off. We all deal with our pasts differently. And, and, you know, even look at the Holocaust, you've got someone like the author we previously mentioned, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who had a Mm. profound perspective in dealing with his suffering, but not all of his fellow prisoners had that attitude. And in fact, there's a very poignant part of his book where it's after the Holocaust was over and he was walking through uh, kind of the woods with a a friend of his who'd also been a, a concentration camp prisoner, but they were now free and they were just talking and catching up on life. And as they walked through the woods, they came to this clearing. It was this field and the field was, um, filled with you know wheat or some type of some type of food was being grown and it was you know growing well and this person this this person that was with Dr. Frankel started running and trampling the plants and just destroying them and Dr. Victor Frankel said what are you doing why why are you stomping on these plants and he said well I've been treated badly and I have every right to do what I want to someone else's property. I've, I've been a victim. I've had my family taken from me. I've had my home ripped from me. I've had this happen. I have every right to do this. And Dr. Frankel resisted doing the same. And he pulled his arm away from his friend who was trying to grab him along to have him join in on this. And he made the point, you're right. You've had injustice inflicted upon you. And you're right that this has been greatly destructive to your well-being. That doesn't give you a right to take an innocent party and their property and their, you know, field of food that they're growing and doesn't give you the right to do that. And it's not going to undo what's happened to you. So there's an example where two people were traumatized, but they dealt with their trauma in a very different way. Yeah. And so I, I guess it, goes back to what we were talking about earlier regarding Viktor Frankl, that it depends on your perspective that you have yes. will right. will help you to handle your past trauma in different ways, I suppose. Exactly. You talk in your book about a guy near the end who was only alive because his sibling was aborted. Now, I know how we would uh, intellectually, or, you know, I, I know some ways that I would intellectually respond to this kind of argument, but it is kind of a tough one when someone brings it up to, to kind of, you know, look them in the eye and, and tell them, I, I'm happy you're here. I, I don't, you know, I don't believe your being here is wrong in any way, but I, you know, I still believe that, you know, abortion is wrong. And so how, how would you handle that kind of a situation either regarding like what, what argument intellectually would you use and how would you on a more human interactive emotional level, would you, would you handle that kind of a situation? Yeah. You know, that one was really tough. Um, to see, you know, this student resisting embracing the pro-life perspective, resisting the idea that life begins fertilization because of the personal consequences to him and his life, knowing that if he claims life begins at fertilization, then he's admitting his mom killed his sibling. And he's admitting that if she'd never killed the sibling, that she couldn't have conceived him because he was conceived after her abortion, which if she had still been pregnant, never aborted, then the, the one sperm and egg that only in history would have ever made him never would have met type thing. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I remember my heart just grieved for him. And I thought, how do I reach him? And I think, um, you know, what I'd recommend in encounters like that is 
to do a twofold approach. The first is just asking the open-ended questions like, um, how does that make you feel? And, you know, does your mom ever talk about that abortion? And from there, I would make it more general and ask a question like, do you think it's possible for people to make wrong choices and good come from those choices? And moreover, do you think it's possible that the good that comes while good doesn't make the bad or the wrongdoing acceptable? It just shows the power of redemption. And then, of course, those are very open-ended kind of theoretical questions, so it can be helpful if you can give a concrete example. So I would give a hypothetical, and I would say to such an individual, for example, let's imagine someone is raped, they get pregnant, and they choose to carry that pregnancy to term. And let's imagine that the child conceived in rape grows up and finds a cure for cancer so that no one ever dies of cancer again. And then I would say to the individual, do you acknowledge, can you acknowledge rather, that the existence of that individual who creates the cure for cancer is a wonderful thing, is a great good for our society? And then if they acknowledge that, and hopefully they would, I would then say, do you also acknowledge, though, that the rape which brought that person into existence was evil and can never be justified? And hopefully, again, they would say yes. And then I would say, you know, as a person of faith, I would say this is where God, in his wisdom, makes all things new and and, and takes the mess that we humans create and he can still bring good from the mess. It doesn't, it doesn't make the mess unmessy. It just shows his power and might. And if someone isn't a person of faith, I would say you could even say, well, nature does that. Nature has this way of taking even our mistakes and, and bringing good from it. So therefore, I would say consistency compels me to acknowledge what your mom did was wrong. I can't call the preborn child a human being. And, and, and try to minimize her, her, her decision. It was a grave, serious choice that she made that ultimately ended the life of your sibling. And, and I have to acknowledge that's wrong. But let me tell you, the good thing I think that comes from this horrible wrong is you. You hmm. are the redemption to this ugly situation. You are the good that has come about, which while it doesn't erase what's happened, it redeems what's happened. That's a, gr- a great response. I think that's much better than the, r- the response that I usually give. So I might have to steal that if you don't mind. Sure, please. I, I always <laughs> tell people, hey, yeah. if it works, use it. This is about saving lives, not not uh, getting your name at the end of a quote. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I've said a lot of good things about your book already because I, I really want people to to go out and, and pick up a copy because I, I think it I think it's a probably a necessary resource for anyone's library. But aside from the things that I've already said about it, there are some discussions in the book, which actually helped me to sort of clarify my own thinking on some of these issues. One of those being the the issue of, of life and death situations regarding life-threatening pregnancies, such as ectopic pregnancies mm. or cancerous uteruses and th- things like that. And, you know, I, I always had an intellectual response at the ready that, you know, talking about like triage and double effect reasoning. But I think the way that you put it really helped to to, to make it clearer in my mind, especially some of the, the analogies that you give regarding showing that there's a difference between 
between the, the different means that you can arrive at something and the end itself, such as when you're talking about getting good grades because you study versus getting good grades because you're cheating, uh, because you cheated, or mm. rescuing a or rescuing a person who's drowning, where you can't save the other person versus pushing the other person un, under the water. So there's definitely a difference there uh, between the, the two different ways that you arrive at the certain good end, which would be rescuing the drowning person or, or getting those those good grades. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that's my my big passion is when these seemingly complex scenarios like a woman's life in danger are brought up. How do we show people it's still possible to have clear thinking? It's still possible that the truth can be simply understood. Um, And and that's what I I aim to do in, in that case for sure. Yeah. Well, we are coming up here to the end of our time together. I wish that I could just have you all day and just pick your brain the entire day. But uh, unfortunately, you know, you have other things you have to do and I have other things I have to do. And so it's just not really uh, feasible to do that. Where can people, Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, it's been fine. And actually you picking my brain is actually challenging me to uh, expand my thinking and, and come up with uh, better ways to explain things. So I appreciate it. Mutually helpful. (laughs) yeah, no, you, you you did great. I I, I loved uh, every answer you gave. So where then? So where then can people find you online? Yeah, so people can go to my website, which is my name. So stephaniegray.info. That's Stephanie Gray spelled Gray with an A. I always like to say it rhymes. So stephaniegray.info, <laughs> right. and info is short for information. So stephaniegray.info, and then from my website, then people can find my YouTube channel. They can see my talks at Google presentation, which is embedded on my website, um, as well as uh, access to a link to my Facebook account. So stephaniegray.info is the best way for people to get a hold of me. And from there, they can also email me as well, which is on the website. Okay. And are there any other websites or other books you'd like to plug, either yours or, or somebody else's? Well, certainly, yeah. I hope they go to my website uh, and uh, and click on the link for Love Unleashes Life. <laughs> and actually, I right. have staring at me, um, <laughs> right in front of me, I have a stack of books. And um, third from the top is Persuasive Pro-Life, which is Trent Horn's uh, excellent pro-life apologetics book. And, right. you know, how I compare and contrast mine to um, Trent's is mine is kind of the your introductory short book. And Trent's mm. is in-depth, um, really fleshing out, especially some of the more complex philosophical arguments that abortion supporters can raise. And so, yeah, we definitely encourage people to look up Trent Horn and his book, Persuasive Pro-Life. Yeah, and uh, you know, your book is a real easy read, too. Someone who who is, is sufficiently motivated could probably read through it in the span of, of an afternoon, I would imagine. Yeah, and even if you're going to read it that quickly, uh, you know, don't don't just put it away and forget about it. You really want to uh, to read it multiple times. You want to study it and and kind of ingrain a lot of the things that Stephanie talks about in her book. And your interactions with abortion choice people will just be light years ahead of of where they where it was before. So, yeah, as I said before, we are coming to the end here. And so I'd like to thank you, uh, the audience, for listening. And, Stephanie, again, uh, I'd love to just thank you again and for allowing me to interview you and, and giving your thoughts on, on these topics. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Clinton. If you enjoy uh, what we talk about here on the podcast, especially regarding the interviews that I do, then I would just ask that you share it around. The information that we present here we feel is is very important and will benefit 
uh, pro-life people who, who listen in. So share it around. And as I mentioned before, we are now on iTunes. So either on our Facebook page or on our iTunes account, rate us, review us, uh, let us know what you think. And also, this is a, a weekly podcast that we do, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more persons working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, then you can also indicate that in the notes section. And donations are also tax deductible. Next week, which is actually in two days from the broadcast of this interview, I'm going to be joined again by my co-hosts, Nathan and Aaron, and we're talking about the substance view. And the next interview that I'm going to conduct will be in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be talking to Russell D. Silvestro, who is a philosopher at the University of California in Sacramento. And so that's going to be another, another one that you're not going to want to miss. So I'm lo- looking forward to having him on the show. So once again, I would like to thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.